Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Anne-Raphaël Audouin, CEO of Nukit Corporation, about her proposed project to bring power to Arctic communities. But before we dive into that, let's have a quick discussion with CJI fellow and Energy Security Forum Manager Joe Callanan about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. Joe, what's going on? Tell me what you're doing. Like, what's up? Uh, well, uh, I spent the today looking a bit at uh, the energy news. But uh, before that, yesterday and the day before, both you and I were involved in a few uh, conferences, the Global Energy Show especially, as well as the National Coalition of Chiefs Energy Conference. So, uh, yeah, we've been spending quite a bit of time uh, hobnobbing with various people on that front. Well, yeah, and we, you know, and we had a couple of events that we may touch on uh, in our little prelim here, but and we brought a guest up from uh, Columbia University to talk about China, and we're going to save that. We're just going to wet the listeners' appetite for our future podcast with Erica Downs of Columbia, uh, talking about China, Russia, and the United States, Saudi Arabia. Um, let's talk about the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. I think that's was on your mind a bit, wasn't it? Yeah, let's talk about some moves in the United States to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So on Tuesday, the United States Department of Energy announced plans to purchase around 12 million barrels of crude oil this year to begin the process of refilling the SPR following its dramatic drawdown last year. Since September 2021, the U.S. SPR has drawn its inventories down by 269 million barrels, bringing the amount of crude in storage from 621 million to 352 million barrels. These releases accelerated last year in an attempt to restrain crude oil prices following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is by far the largest release of crude from the SPR in its history. On October 18, 2022, the Biden administration announced plans to repurchase crude oil for the SPR when prices lowered to uh, at or below $67 to uh, around $72 per barrel. At the time, WTI crude oil futures we're trading at around $82 per barrel. Today, those futures are trading at $68 per barrel. The first contracts for 3 million barrels of crude oil to resupply the SPR, however, were awarded last week for an average price above this, uh, above these futures of $73 per barrel with delivery to SPR storage in August 2023. I think it's important, Joe, to discuss the SPR in American, in the American pol- political environment, you know, on a broader basis, um, as most listeners will probably know, the Biden administration's use of the SPR to constrain prices provoked a strong reaction from Saudi Arabia, which was attempting to prop up higher prices with cuts to OPEC production. With the Saudi budget so dependent on high oil prices, the use of the SPR in this way can be seen as a direct threat to Saudi interests. Um, it's also important to note that. Uh, U.S. domestic concerns also played a major role. The Biden administration messaged messaging around SPR releases is explicit as to its role in bringing down gasoline prices. Because as we all know, and it, we've stated on this podcast, it's it's a common thread that the price of gasoline is the needle in the United States when it comes to hydrocarbon commodities. As the U.S. came close to the midterm elections last November, Restraining unpopular high gasoline prices was important to the political interests of the U.S. Democrats, and it played out that way. 
But there's other uh, political concerns that could now intervene. Releases from the SPR are based in the executive power of the presidency. To buy that crude, uh, it requires consent of Congress. And as we know, the uh, Congress is now controlled by the, Demo- or by the Republicans. Um, this was seen in 2020 when previous President Trump was prevented from restocking the SPR when oil was dirt cheap by the Democrat-dominated Congress at the time. Similar thing, similar issues could plague current efforts to refill the reserve. Um, 12 million barrels per year is makes it pretty slow to fill it, Joel. Like that, you got 350 million barrels. That sounds like uh, 30 years to me. Like I, I don't, I'm not very good at math, but that's kind of how it works, isn't it? It's close um, enough. The other thing to remember, bear in mind, though, is also that you know hawkish uh, Republican congressmen probably think that putting some oil into the SPR is a good idea, given global tensions around uh, China, Russia, other issues that are geopolitical and realpolitik issues that are plaguing any kind of, what would you call it, uh, detente around uh, who's mad at who. And uh, I think that it's probably a good move by the Biden administration to do this right now if they've got opportunity. The, one of the other things that we, that isn't, that we didn't discuss, and I don't want to go too down the rabbit hole of, uh, of uh, the SPR too far, but... You know, you can't just fill it up with the kind of, like, it, that there's a lot of conditions as to what types of crude oil are, are, are in it, where they are and when they're put in. And, and uh, it's, but it, it's, it, it is important to note that they've, uh, that they've decided to uh, start buying some crude oil. Does that, I wonder, is that kind of setting a new bottom um, along with the million barrel per day uh cutback of OPEC plus there's whole there's a lot of moving parts here Joe like yeah so. I'm not I'm not sure if the volumes are high enough to really put a strong floor under the price doesn't but... really know they aren't really are they like if you mm-hmm. think about that at, at even on a monthly basis what's that 400,000 barrels per day kind of Mm. Like it's the you know, U.S. uses 15 million I mean, barrels. I think we should be frank about the SPR uh, in terms of, let, let's talk about North American crude oil production, which I think is around 20 million barrels per day. You could fill million, up think, the yeah. entire SPR in maybe two weeks uh, if you devoted all that oil production to, uh, to filling the SPR. And then if you look at all the crude storage that uh, exists all around the world, it absolutely dwarfs the SPR. I've always, you know, I've been contending this for 20 years, Joe, that when the oil sands were, were uh, deemed economic back in the, ter- around the turn of the century, 02, 03, when, when the current, the current operations were made, moved the, the, moved them from probable to proved developed reserves. And all of a sudden you had 160 billion barrels of recoverable oil in Canada. That's a pretty big SPR, eh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> but the, the SPR idea, I think, it's not only the amount of resources there, but also how dispatchable it is, right? Yeah, that's Same true. Same way that, that electricity, you, you can't just have a big capacity. It also needs yeah, to be dispatchable. There's been, there's been you know, line three, uh, the, like the, the upgrades of, of crude oil transportation has happened a lot too in the last 20 mm-hmm. years. And, and if Keystone had been completed, then we wouldn't even be having this discussion. But that's another, that's for another day. Don't get me all wound up about Keystone, you know how I feel about that. <laughs> So what what else, Joe? We've bit we've beat that debt to death. So what oh, else for is sure. going on? 
Yeah, uh, just one more story that I think we'll cover here because uh, it's getting a little bit late, and I'd like to. Yeah, uh, and we've been like busy. Week, Joe, you're, 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 I'll let you go with just two. Not going to get a letter in your personnel file because we've only got two stories. <laughs> we're we're good. Oh, I'd like to see all the other letters in my personnel file. Yeah, it's uh, thick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next up, let's uh, talk about a report from the International Energy Agency. On Wednesday, the IEA came out with a medium-term report on supply and demand for oil out to 2028. The biggest headline result from this report is the forecast that demand for oil from combustible fossil fuels, excluding oil for non-energy uses as well as for biofuels, will peak in 2028 at 81.6 million barrels per day. So uh, this is pretty much entirely the use of fuels for energy. So that includes, you know, transportation, use for heating, use for uh, electricity, all of that sort of lumped in together. And this is for liquid fuels, not for natural gas. So it'll peak in uh, 2028 at 81.6 million barrels per day. Uh, but importantly, the IEA believes that 2023 will be the peak for global gasoline demand and 2026 will be the peak for transport fuels overall. Uh, petrochemicals, on the other hand, are expected to drive oil demand upwards after that, with half of the rise in demand through to 2028, stemming from liquefied petroleum gas, ethane, and naphtha. Uh, jet fuel demand is also expected to rise significantly. I could drone on about the IEA and, and how it fails at a lot of its tasks, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about um, the complications of geography and fuels. Um, in North America, the IEA anticipated gasoline falls far faster than diesel from the uptake of EVs, which I, which I can guarantee you isn't going to happen near as fast as they would like to think. Um, I was on another call earlier today, and I can't say who it was with, but the uh, delivery of Ford cars, EVs for in a fleet situation ain't happening. Like the, the company that I'm talking with, they've got, they've got to start, they've got to start rebuilding their fleet with gas powered cars because can't get the parts to build the cars. Okay. So, but let's talk about, we, we could go into, that's an on the ground noise from a company that's trying to buy them and they can't because Ford can't deliver them. So let's just put that set aside the whole EV thing. But in Europe, uh, diesel's more common for fuel for personal vehicles and, and diesel supply is tenuous. The shift to EVs is expected to have a larger impact on diesel demand there. That's important to note, and that's true. Asia, of course, is a much different story to 2028 with growth expected across product categories. Uh, liquid petroleum, gas, and naphtha, and jet fuel, diesel are all especially expected to make major areas of growth. And we saw some of that at the conference yesterday, Joe. You know, there were some of the, the, the some of the presentations talked about these, uh, uh, how, how they see the uh, demand for these things happening uh, in the future in other parts of the world. Nonetheless, the IEA expects overall growth to slow through 27 and 28, just as the North American and, and Europe begin to decline. It's a forecast, right? You know, the only thing you know for sure, it's wrong. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll be frank. Uh, there's been a few forecasts put out by the IEA that have been very, very wrong in 2022, which caused a lot of issues with the global oil market. There was this idea that uh, Russia would very quickly be facing major production constraints due to lack of Western technology in their oil fields, which definitely did not pan out the way that many analysts were expecting. And uh, I think, uh, you know, that there, there has to be a little bit more humility, I suppose, about what, what really we can expect in the future. Good comments, Joe. Um, 
these are interesting developments and it's always fun to do this prior to our podcast. Yeah, yeah, I have a great time too, Kelly. And uh, just a reminder to all of our listeners, uh, please subscribe to our newsletter. You can find it on our website. You can subscribe and uh, get it delivered right into your inbox every Wednesday morning. Okay, let's go talk to Anne-Raphael Adouin about uh, getting uh, infrastructure built in Northern Canada. It's a very interesting conversation. For today's interview, recorded June 12, 2023, we discussed the concept of long-distance power lines in the Arctic, more than the concept how this is going to be implemented and how they can be used to improve energy security in Canada's far north. Joining me from Ottawa, Ontario is Anne-Raphael Audouin. Anne-Raphael is the Chief Executive Officer at Newkick Corporation. Prior to joining Newkick, Anne-Raphael was President and CEO of Water Power Canada as a representative and national spokesperson for the largest electrical electricity sector in Canada. Anne-Raphael, thanks for joining me today on Energy Security Cube. Thank you for having me. Let's kick off with uh, with the project that's at the core of your being today at Newkick, the Kivalik Hydro Fiber Link. Can you give us a quick overview of the project, how it came to be, and where you're at right now? Well, thank you, Kelly, and a uh, pleasure to be with you today. Um, so the Kivalik Hydro Fiber Link, I like to say uh, when presenting and explaining it, is that it's not a new project, first of all. It's important to know that it's been discussed both in Nunavut and Manitoba at the federal level, probably close to a decade now. Uh, so not a new undertaking and it's it's a vital and crucial project for, for Canada to see through. Um, but really in its at its core, it's about creating connectivity, both with fiber optic and with bringing clean energy to a region that 100% now relies on burning diesel for all of its, uh, its needs from residential needs to business needs and obviously healthcare and, and schools, et cetera. So, the project is a long transmission line running from Manitoba into the Kivalik region of Nunavut, which would take um, several communities off of diesel and also bring, um, what I was saying earlier, broadband connectivity with fiber optic into those communities, because right now they rely on, uh, on satellites, which is obviously not the most reliable and also quite costly. So how long is it? 1,200 kilometer transmission line rated at uh, 150 megawatt uh, transmission capacity and uh, connecting five different communities in the Kivalik region crossing the border um, between Manitoba and, uh, and Nunavut. Nukik describes itself as an Inuit-led organization with strong Inuit representation on its board of directors and in its ownership. Um, and, and, you know, obviously the communities that, you, that the, the, the transmission line will go through are mostly Inuit. How does this involvement shape the goals of the company and the, the benefits distribution of the project? Can you elaborate on that? Because I think it's crucial to understand who it is, why, what's needed, and, their, and, and how, that, how those decisions get made. Yeah, so maybe in addition to what you said, uh, 100% of all the electricity would serve Inuit communities. Um, that's, that's all there is in, in, in Inuvit or Inuit communities. Um, some are inland, some are on the, on the shoreline of the West Hudson Bay. Uh, but that's the beauty of the project is it would really um, bridge that crippling infrastructure gap that we keep on hearing about at the national level, but that is so palpable in Nunavut. Uh, if people who are going to listen to to this podcast have been to Nunavut, they, they know what I'm talking about. Um, and so the, the fact that it's Inuit, not only Inuit-led, it's Inuit-owned. 
Um, so our ownership structure for Nuki Corporation is 51% Kibelikinuit Association, which is the political uh, body um, and manager and, and holder of lands in the Kivalik region of Nunavut. And 49% ownership is Saku uh, Investments Corporation and Saku is the business arm of the Kivalik Inuit Association. So together they are the strongest uh, makeup of Inuit ownership and leadership that you could imagine for a major project being, um, being developed in, in this region of Nunavut. And my whole board of directors are made up of, uh, of Inuk from the Kivalik region who live in different hamlets uh, in, in, in the Kivalik. And they are the ones who are obviously the beating heart, the soul of the project, and also who are giving us the direction, the guidance, and the marching orders on, on the priorities and the next steps on, on this major project. So could you, would it be fair to describe it as, a, it's not a crown corporation? No, no, we're not, we're a private sector. And so how do you, how is it going to be financed? The financial structure right now is still to be finalized. We haven't reached financial close. So I think that's the first thing I would say. We, we completed pre-development. We now in active development. We have been in active development since 2022, hoping to have shovel in the ground by the end of 2026. And the financial structure that is currently laid out in our business case uh, to be confirmed at financial close is um, a significant investment from the Canada Infrastructure Bank, who's been a key contributor and supporter of our efforts since, uh, since day one. Private equity uh, as well would have to be brought into the, the financial makeup of our project to de-risk um, de the profile of, of the undertaking. And finally, we are looking at uh, a contribution from the federal government in the form of a grant, because uh, this, this major project has um, a significant hurdle ahead of its, um, ahead of its development, which is that uh, it's obviously to connect the Arctic. And so it is, it is an expensive project, uh, currently rated at $3 billion. Um, and so we need a very uh, committed federal partner to make this project a reality. You know, in my travels around the mostly Western Canada, but also in the East and in the United States, like the the prevalence and importance of the Arctic is becoming more and more understood. Uh, um, I and I so I want to commend you on pushing this forward. I know it's going to take time, but um, let's just talk about why. And and as you pointed out so succinctly, you know, Nunavut currently produces electricity only with diesel. And I, I've mm -hmm. had. Madeline Redfern here. I've talked to others. This is the fact. Um, each uh, each community and industrial site, essentially being an island, basically mm -hmm. an island, uh, powered by diesel fuel, uh -huh. um, not connected to other communities in the north by power or or uh, or anything else. What are, you, can explain that just how much that grinds things to a halt for the listener? Like, um, mm -hmm. and 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 how can that? How will the Kabbalic Hydrolink change that? Yeah, so I, I always start when I answer this question by going back in time a little bit and, and reflecting on what our Inuit leadership has told us, us at the operational level, which is that Inuit in the Arctic of Canada have gone from having no carbon footprint and uh, living off of the land, heating their homes with uh, the oil that came from whales and, and mammals, uh, ocean mammals. Um, to now having the highest carbon intensity probably in the whole of North America. And that has 
really, really crippling and damaging effects on their day-to-day -day lives. Like obviously in every community where you go to right now in Nunavut, uh, you see those big diesel plants. Um, the volume of diesel that is being shipped through very sensitive Arctic waters as well is only um, a tragedy waiting to happen, quite frankly, in terms of those massive ships that come and, and deliver that, that diesel. The nature of the diesel, so that's being burnt in the Arctic, is probably the dirtiest form of diesel you could imagine because due to the sheer volume of diesel that you need to procure. Well, and the plants are old. I know a lot about diesel fuel. I'm a farmer. So um, the, the plants won't, like, they aren't set up to, they will be the dirtiest plants because they're old. Like it's, and that, that must also be another issue. Like mm -hmm. in the interim here, and I, sorry, I'm going off script a little bit, Anne Raphael, because <laughs> I, I'm interested in this. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there, like the interim period here, they have to work until... It changes, right? So I can, is there a concern about the quality or the, the maintenance? Like, are they wearing out? Are, it, it, what about fixing them? What about a switch? And I'm going to go way out, off the out of the envelope here because I know you'll be able to answer it. And if you can't, doesn't matter. What about going to LNG, or, uh, uh, sorry, NGLs or propane in the interim to change the, because you can't just stop. Like it's, these, mm -hmm. this machinery has to work until you don't need it anymore. So is, has that been, is that part of the, would that be part of the discussion? So several things to unpack here. Um, yes, the diesel plants for some of them are very old. They're past their lifetime and the territorial utility, Cubic Energy Corporation, um, is looking at this with uh, with a high degree of, of concern because they need also the federal partnership to upgrade those plants. They, they cost in, in the dozens and dozens of millions of dollars. And obviously it's not within you know, the government's priorities to, to help with upgrading diesel plants. So those interim measures are all discussed. Um, quite frankly, at this time, what, what interim measure really would happen depends on whether or not a project like the Kivalik Hydrofiber Link gets done. Right now, our in-service target date is 2030. So then you have seven years to bridge do upgrading those diesel plants until you have an intertie that not only allows you to bring clean energy and sustain all of your um, hydro and, by the way, heating load, and so completely decarbonize that region, but also allows you, if you do build renewable generation in the north, allows you to sell your surplus electricity back onto the grid and help you know, other jurisdictions decarbonize and meet their 2035 and most likely 2050 net zero um, economy-wide targets. So all of those have to click in to be an integrated view of what's feasible. Uh, we know that in a community which is quite remote as well, the community of Churchill, they do uh, meet a lot of their energy needs with propane. So I'm with you, they are, they are bridging solutions, but those will only be assessed in a very tangible and realistic manner until there is a commitment to a major project such as the Kivalik Hydrofiber Link. You know, I hate to be, to, sound, to roll out my interest in geopolitics and but this is a realpolitik situation inside a country. It really mm -hmm. is. You've got communities and citizens that need a service. And somewhere, somebody's going to have to understand the vagaries of consequence and, and uh, collaboration. And I'll just leave it at that. We could, we could talk about that forever. But, um, you know, I, I want to talk a bit about the mechanics and, the, and just the underpinning of something like this. You, as you said, it's 1,200 kilometers carrying power from a hydroelectric dams near Gillam, Manitoba, all along the Hudson Bay coast. Just think about that, folks, like to Bay, as far as well as inland to Baker Lake. Um, what are the physical challenges? Like we're talking muskeg and 
the Canadian Shield, right? Like mm-hmm. this is not this is not just simple. It's not like building a pipeline or or clear cutting trees. Or, sorry, to build a right away for a power line through a melting permafrost. So, can you talk a bit about the mechanics of it, Anne Raphael? Yeah, and, and they are significant. You know, I'm 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 never downplaying that. But at the end of the day, we've done our homework. You don't propose a project like that without looking at a the alternatives and making sure that you are proposing the best configuration of a project to reach uh, the objectives that you're trying to reach. And also that ultimately you are proposing something that's based on lessons learned, not only in, in Canada, but around the world. And so we've looked at what's been done in Northern Europe, in Northern Russia. And I can tell you that from those case studies, which are part of the, the, the common literature that we've looked at, you have transmission lines that are of longer distances over harshest terrain in uh, difficult, sometimes more difficult climatic conditions around the world than what we are proposing with the Kivalik hydrofiber link. So really, um, the fact that sometimes people get overwhelmed with saying, okay, right. this is a transmission line that goes to the Arctic. We've, de- we've never done this before. Well, we've never done this in Canada, but there's lots of press. All, the yes. all the other Arctic nations in the, in, in the world have developed those assets because guess what? This is instrumental to protecting your north. If you don't have that kind of basic infrastructure, then you're vulnerable in 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 that last frontier of, of the Arctic. And also the second part of that is all the action right now is not in our urban centers in terms of critical defense and, and the vulnerable centers are effectively at that at that Arctic border where there's lots of actions with different nations where we do need to protect our, our people, first of all, but also ha- ensure that we have some sort of Arctic sovereignty over our over our borders. So that, that infrastructure is, is absolutely critical. Uh, and I'll say it's both the infrastructure of the uh, transmission line bringing power, reliable power, but also bringing reliable connectivity with fiber optic. Because when you rely on protecting your Arctic with a satellite connection that um, sometimes the satellites are owned by China or Russia, or it's probably not the best configuration you could hope for. So something's got to change. And I think to tie into what you were asking me prior about, you know, the challenges and how obviously it's never been done before um, is the fact that, you know, nothing's going to be easy in the Arctic. We, we just have to understand that. And, and to put the Kivalik hydrofiber link in the same shoes as maybe a, an infrastructure project downtown Toronto is it's not only not fair, but also it's nonsensical. It just doesn't make sense because the you, the paradigm is completely different. And so saying that it's sometimes an expensive project for the number of people who live in the area. Um, well, it's about like way to... more than that. It's way, yeah, exactly. and I think that people need to understand that. Like yeah. this is about sovereignty and the, the, you know, we have to start thinking about these things in 10 and 20 year segments not tomorrow like I, because as you point so pointedly make the, or so easily make the point and it isn't just the transmission line you're right fiber optic to the areas is is the is connectivity that's that that protects sovereignty absolutely mm-hmm. does and the the whole idea of how do you think we're going to get to these critical mineral sites that, are, that mm-hmm. need to be developed without connectivity to at least the stepping off point from the bay or coming north. You know, there's, the, the, I guess the biggest challenge I see when I look at, we, we do a lot of work around the all Arctic nations is the, mm-hmm. once you get past the, the, the kind of get up toward the end of Hudson Bay, now you're talking about island situation. There's a lot of situ, situationally, our Arctic isn't the same 
as Russia, for instance, you know, 2000 mm -hmm. miles of coastline for Russia straight, you know, the, the, the geography is different, but that not that said, um, I, I, this is really an interesting conversation and thank you so much for coming on. Um, from what I understand, and you said, uh, I'm sorry, from what you said, the power line would carry about 150 megawatts of power. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's not a lot of capacity for such a long line. Um, is that like, is that, is it expandable or is, is that enough for say, you know, the next 50 years in the North, uh, given permutations of math and, and what people would think you would be needed or is, are we under, you know, the country, the country's bad for underbuilding. Right. You know, yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it really is. I, I just take it going to any major city and look at the why didn't they build that eight lanes wide before? Like, you know, it's uh, um, so is that a concern for the for the uh, for you folks or? Um, so underbuilding it is not a concern because we're putting all the design criteria in place so that it is scalable. And also because keep in mind that the Entata is really the lifeline that we bring into the region until it, it builds its own generation. So it, it, is, it is a fulsome view that the region has and the integrated resource planning is, is definitely um, not as mature as it would be in other regions of, the, of, of Canada. But at the same time, you have, you have to start at, you know, those low hanging fruits and, and that intertie bringing clean energy from Manitoba is very much a low hanging fruit just from the sheer geography, even, even though it is an online, we recognize that, but it, it, is, it is not uh, that complicated at the end of the day. You know, we've been building transmission lines in North America since 1889 was the first time one was commissioned. Uh, in in the U.S., so we kind of know what we're doing when it comes to building transmission line, and um, also the fact that the 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 benefits are are so um, um, multiple and also multi generational that it, it is a no brainer. So it's um, it has its complexities, but I think the time is now to make a project like that happen and. Let's also remember that those projects are never going to get cheaper and they're never going to get easier. So you do have a window, and if you don't capitalize on on those windows, then it's uh, then it's sad. It's sad for the makeup of our country. So you mentioned the three billion dollar number. Um, could we talk about the business model for Nuke Corporation and how mm -hmm. it, how you would uh, generate a rate of return, or or is it or should we strictly be looking at this as a service? Um, so can you explain a bit about the, uh, um, like how you generate the, the return on the capital because the, pro the private partner, the, the, the private equity partner needs a return, right? Yeah, obviously. So it, there, there is a return on investment that's built into our business case, both for the private equity investors, but also from the Canada Infrastructure Bank. The rate is different, obviously. They're they're not right. they're not the same creature, uh, but that's that's been built in since uh, since we started uh, looking at this project in our business case and in the 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 final the financial makeup of said business case, um, and you know we are a carrier of electrons and we are a carrier of fiber. And at the end of the day, we're not the service provider, meaning we're not creating a new territorial utility. We're not creating a new uh, fiber operator, but what we bring as a product um, would get sold to the different system providers and operators of um, in, the, in the territory. And then would become obviously the new, the new product that gets delivered into homes and businesses in that region. So we would um, obviously uh, set up agreements with Kulik Energy Corporation, the territorial utility who would be one of our anchor customer. Um, 
Mines would be another anchor customer in the region. There's uh, the the energy intensity at mine sites is 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 it's huge, and so there would be a, a big customer of the mine. And then on the fiber, we would set up uh, the same type of agreements um, on the purchasing side with uh, providers of of internet and broadband services. So before we finish, Anne Raphael, what's the what are the biggest uh, roadblocks and or hurdles that you see? in the short and medium term here? What's what, what's keeping you up at night about the project? You know, I think what, what's keeping me up is a sense of frustration sometimes because we do play and, and say a big game about how we are committed to climate action. We have 2030, 2035, and 2050 climate targets. And I think it's been... Um, it's been acted upon now that we are not going to reach 2030, and we are in a tough place, quite frankly, to meet 2035 for the decarbonization of our grid, which might be a bit easier because we already have an 80% non-emitting grid. So that 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 one remains to be seen. But at the end of the day, I think we are in a position to deliver a major project that, in and of itself, would meet the whole of Nunavut 2030 greenhouse gas um, emission reduction target. So that 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 is huge. That that contribution to our efforts at the national level, which is why it goes way you know, beyond a Nunavut effort, that contribution would be, would be absolutely great. Um, but the obstacles are numerous in the sense that um, I think this government still continues to like smaller types projects when it comes to decarbonization. So getting them to understand that it's going to take major projects such as you know, the center tie to really meaningfully meet our, our objectives is, is, is sometimes a hurdle. And it's easier to get you know, a 500,000 or one, $2 million contribution for solar panels than it is to get behind a 3 billion capital cost project. I, I get that, but at the end of the day, if we're serious and if we wanna walk the talk on our commitments, this is the level of effort that it's gonna take. I was reading a report just uh, last week that in the US alone over the three to next four years, the um, investment in entities and, and in the US grid is going to be over 100 billion US dollars. So it tells you a little bit about the magnitude. And yes, US, you know, bigger population, bigger uh, urban centers, et cetera. But we're, we're way behind, uh, no matter no, what. Yeah, that, that, should, that should equate to at least $10 billion, right? Like, you know, that alone. If you take the 10% the population, like yeah. um, you're very considerate and, uh, and uh, politically neutral about the federal government. I'm not so much so if people will have who listen to this podcast and, and I'll just paraphrase what you said. They talk the talk and don't walk the walk. And I, they, if they don't start picking up on these big projects and go all in, you gotta go all in here. Like, and, and, and that's what it takes is that leadership and political will at the, at the highest level to then drag on to the other parts pieces of the puzzle. Could you talk a bit about the, the private equity portion and then and mm -hmm. that that's ownership 49%. Can you talk about that partner? Because that's obviously uh, an indigenous uh, group that and and yeah. where, where where does their capital come from? So that that remains to be seen. We have you know development partners who have committed in principle to being a part of uh, of the equity makeup for the project, but ultimately these will all be finalized at financial close. Um, but I'll tell you, Kelly, getting private equity and crowding in private equity is not a problem we have. We have people banging on our door to invest in this project. It is the federal government commitment that is a problem. And it is also the commitment of 
um, a utility to share electricity with the project that is a problem because we have created um, a, an energy grid in our nation, maybe accidentally so, but we have created uh, a country whereby utilities, prime corporations, have monopolies in provincial jurisdictions in particular in some of those provinces and who trade more with the US than they do within their own Canadian borders. And that creates immense problems when you ask them to look north and not south, because they do make quite a bit uh, of money trading with the US. But we are going to effectively enable the US to meet their climate targets with Canadian clean electricity before we meet our own. And so we see that wall coming into our faces at uh, very much high speed, but we don't have the tools in the toolbox to answer meaningfully because we feel that we're, we have a clean grid and we're doing so well and we're decarbonizing and we're investing in storage and, and other technologies, but really infrastructure underpins everything. And infrastructure um, underpins development of hydrogen, it underpins development of SMRs, MMRs, everything else we might want to do in the future, which is groundbreaking type of technologies, but all those, you can have all the best clean generation you want. If you don't have transmission lines to carry it from point A to point B where it's needed, then you're no further along. So those are, um, I think, the conundrums that I still don't have answers for you here today. Well... And Raphael, I want to commend you on your uh, your vigor and and your commitment. Um, I think this is a crucial piece of business. To you know, the, the, you, you can go all the way back to Prime Minister Diefenbaker and all the prime ministers of this country since the early '60s to talking about the North and it's time to walk the walk. Really, I and I we're fully apprised of what you're trying to do, and and uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Has been a very interesting conversation, and we're going to stay in touch and do it again um, early next year and see where things are at. We always ask um, our guests before they go um, what they're reading or streaming these days. Um, outside of technical reports and private equity agreements or uh, pro uh, possible bid documents. Yeah. Uh, so I have two little kids at home, so I must disclose that I've been working on the book probably for the past few months, but one day I'll finish it. But I do really like it, and it's called uh, The Henna Artist um, by Alka Joshi, and it is, uh, it is a good read. One day yes, I'll finish I, it. Yes, it's, it is a very good book. And Raphael, thanks so much for coming on our podcast. We really appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Jill Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.